You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and by corporate media. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein, The Good One. Today I'm going to be talking about Ellen Schultz's book, Retirement Heist, how companies plunder and profit from the nest eggs of American workers. Pensions are yet another industry where our government, which could easily protect and provide for all its people, instead chooses to take money from the monsters, quietly step aside and look away while the monsters prey upon us all. In 2016, I traveled to Niles, Ohio, near Youngstown, to knock on doors for Bernie Sanders for nine days. My hosts were Chuck and his wife, Cheryl. They are both UAW members who work at General Motors GM. Chuck and I knocked on hundreds of doors together and became friends. During that trip, Chuck was my first ever interview. What he told me was that there were 1.4 million Teamsters having their pensions threatened to be gutted by 35 to 75%. Chuck was a member of the UAW, but his concern was, now it's the Teamsters, when is it our turn? One of the last-ditch efforts to prevent these pensions from being taken away was done by Republican Congressman Rob Portman of Ohio. He sent letters to Teamsters to ask them if they thought that their pensions should be cut. And not voting, meaning not returning the form, was considered an automatic yes vote. Yes, I think our pensions should be cut. What Chuck told me was that it's management's fault at these companies for not properly funding the pension plans that the funds were being squandered. He also told me about a federal agency called the PBGC, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. The PBGC is an insurance company managed by the federal government, and they are the final backstop to ensure that American pensions are paid in case of company failure or a pension fund failure. The PBGC is funded not by taxes, but by company premiums, just like any other insurance company. But now the PBGC itself is running out of money. They don't have anything left to pay these pensions. And so these retirees are losing their pensions. Social Security and pensions are deferred compensation. They're not gratuity. They're not a tip. This is contracted, promised compensation that has been earned over decade-long careers. Salary is paid right now. Social Security and pensions are paid later. Social Security is funded and managed by the federal government, and pensions are funded and managed by private corporations, but insured by the federal government. Now, fast forward three years later. It's the day before Easter 2019, and I see a very well done Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign video called Lordstown Strong, L-O-U-R-D-E-S. In this video, President Trump is at a rally in Youngstown, Ohio, which is near Lordstown and Niles, and he says, 
do not sell your homes because I'm bringing the jobs back. Three weeks later, despite supposedly strong unions, the GM plant closes. That, the pensions, and everything leading up to it devastates the town. There are suicides, there are heart problems in people that are too young for heart problems. Many are forced to transfer to different states if they want to keep their benefits, working 10, 11 hours away from their families. This causes stress, which causes physical problems, which causes more trips to the doctor, and there are reports of routine examinations resulting in unfortunate but very serious medical errors. This is what 40 years of neoliberal policies that deregulate corporations and the super wealthy and strips protections from the people. That's what these policies do. But what really shocked me about this Bernie video, Lordstown Strong, is that it stars Chuck and his wife Cheryl. They are the commercial. As soon as it was over, I called Chuck screaming and excited, and we decided to do another interview the next day on Easter Sunday. Chuck told me about his experience being interviewed by the campaign and how it became a commercial, and we also review some of the pension issues. But what I did not know in 2016, that I do know now, is modern monetary theory, MMT. And what that knowledge reveals is something that completely conflicts with what is happening at the PBGC. MMT shows that the PBGC could easily pay back all pensions for all Americans for all time. There is absolutely no economic reason for it to not pay them. So now let's take a step back. What is MMT, Modern Monetary Theory? I'm going to say just enough to provide context for this issue for this episode, and unfortunately it will very likely bring up more questions than it answers. I will provide some links in the show notes so you can learn more if you'd like, but for now, buckle up. First, I have to say I am not an expert. What I'm good at, what I can do, is I can introduce modern monetary theory as I learned it from the economists. But once your eyes are opened to MMT, you need to go on to the experts to learn more. That said, you and I are limited by money. Unless we want big problems, we cannot purchase resources, services, and products until we first get money from somewhere. A job, a bank loan, credit card, beg or steal. And the same is true for the companies we work at and even the cities and towns and states that we live in. We are all limited by money. There is one entity, however, that is not limited by money, and that is the federal government. They are in exactly the opposite position. Unless they want big problems, they cannot create money until they can first ensure that there are resources available to purchase. If the resources are available, then creating the money to purchase them is a completely safe thing to do. And sometimes it is absolutely necessary and critical to do it. So the federal government of the United States, along with Canada, Japan, the UK, and others, 
are all currency issuers. They are limited, but they're not limited by money. They are limited by resources, real tangible stuff, raw materials, labor, technology, and time. You and I and companies and cities and states are currency users. We can't create the currency, and if we tried, we can go to jail for 20 years for counterfeiting. So since the federal government is not limited by money, that means that all federal agencies and services and benefits are also not limited by money. And that is because they are exclusively funded by the federal government. And yet the PBGC, a federal agency, is claiming to have run out of money. How can you run out of something that you can create out of thin air and at will? The PBGC says that it's funded by company premiums, and we are also told that Social Security is funded by FICA taxes and Medicare is funded by these taxes. We are told that the military and every other federal program and agency is paid for with our tax money. And yet all of these things are, and can only be, and have always been financed with created currency. Every dollar of Social Security benefit, Medicare benefit, and pension benefit paid by the federal government has been spent for the very first time. And since that is true, because it is true, then how is it possible that the PBGC is going broke? How is it possible that it has run out of money? The government can run out of stuff, but it can't run out of money. And yet this is exactly what millions of retirees are being told. The truth is, according to modern monetary theory, MMT, because the United States has an absolute abundance of resources that retirees need to purchase, the United States is the richest country in the history of the world. There is absolutely no economic reason for the PBGC to not pay every pension for every American for all time. And yet, on Easter Sunday 2019, Chuck is once again telling me the money at the PBGC has been squandered. And so I told him, someone somewhere is lying to you, or they are being tricked by someone else that is lying. I told him that is simply not how the economy works. The PBGC is not going broke because it's not possible for them to go broke. There is no money at the PBGC to be squandered. And yet article after article after article confirms just what Chuck is telling me. The PBGC, a federal agency, is going broke. They have no money left to pay the pensions. So how is this possible? What am I missing? What is the point of a federal agency whose one and only purpose is to pay pensions? What's the point of having that agency around? They can easily do it, but they're not doing it. Or they won't do it. And that's when it clicked. The one and only mission of the PBGC is not to pay benefits when companies fail. It's to be the fall guy. 
The PBGC is what these retirees are meant to stare at and bitch to and bitch about so that they don't notice the unending bottomless pit of corruption that is our society with these company owners bribing our federal representatives so they can steal the pensions and enrich themselves. This pension money wasn't squandered by these companies. It was blatantly and brazenly stolen and they bribe our federal representatives so they look the other way. Congress could pass a law in a few hours that would fund Social Security and pensions forever for everyone. They just don't want to do it. Why? Because the owners of these companies legally bribe them not to. Why? Because if the government gave us these things for free, then these companies wouldn't be able to profit off of our suffering in retirement. And as I learned in the book Retirement Heist by Ellen Schultz, they don't want to just profit off of our suffering in retirement. They want to steal from us for all of the decades leading up to it. Retirement Heist is a depressing and enraging book. The biggest lesson that I get out of it is that there is no justice, no protections, no law and order for the people. There is plenty of law and order and justice and protections for the rich. The only things that they haven't stolen from us are either not stealable or they just haven't noticed it yet. It's like that joke about big cities. Welcome to New York City where if it's not yet stolen then it's still bolted down. The system is broken. That's an understatement. My interest in reading this book is not what can we do to fix all these terrible problems because they're all symptoms. The disease is our broken system that allows it to happen. What would truly solve this problem is better people in government. And economically speaking, what would solve this problem is to integrate pensions into Social Security and then for Congress to fund it in perpetuity. However, understanding this wild, wild west that is our completely unregulated neoliberal free market capitalist economy provides important context for this larger picture and maybe the urgency that we need to actually do something about it. Retirement Heist by Ellen Schultz documents the art of being evil, the creativity of evil. It's an endless stream of company after company, each one telling the one before it, you think that's evil? Hold my beer. And unfortunately, the terrible things that happen to our pensions is not that different from the terrible things that happen to us with our health care and many other industries. Now on to the horror show. Note that I'm going to say page numbers every now and then, so if you want to find out more, you'll know where to go in the book. Page 58. The seed that started it all. A 1987 accounting rule required companies to report pension funds as liabilities. This means that money removed from pension funds are now called earnings, no different than the profits from selling a product. Increased earnings means increased investor confidence, which means increased stock price, which means increased performance bonuses and compensation for executives. So now, not only do executives get to keep the pension money itself tax-free, the very act of taking that money 
triggers accounting processes resulting in executives enriching themselves even more. Now they have incentive to take more and more money from the pensions because every dollar they take enriches them many times over. Another benefit of taking money out of the pension funds is that those earnings are now a tool that can be used to hide anything negative happening in the company. Here's an example, page 78. In 2003, Whirlpool recalled many defective microwaves resulting in a hit of 16 cents a share in a single quarter. So they took money from the pension fund enough so that they could report an overall three cents gain per share, 19 cent per share gain. And Whirlpool did this again two more times with two more recalls in the next seven years. So instead of suffering these losses publicly to investors, regulators, and the government because of the reality of their failures, they instead used the pension funds to disguise those failures on the backs of their 90,000 employees as of today and hundreds of thousands of retirees. So stealing from employee pensions didn't just directly enrich executives. It also became an extremely precise tool to hide volatility. The earnings can be used to make it appear to the public that the company was always steadily improving regardless the difficulties that it was actually having. Always increasing share price quarter after quarter after quarter. The only trick was to keep this theft a secret from the employees for decades until it was too late for them to do anything about it. So the 1987 accounting rule was the seed, but the problem from the company's point of view was that they could not drain the funds fast enough. Pages 9 and 10. The 1974 ERISA law, E-R-I-S-A, required pension funds to be, quote, fully funded. And a 1990 law prevented these funds from being substantially drained. In 1999, companies lobbied the ERISA advisory board to complain about their massive surpluses. Verizon had 24 billion, GE had 25 billion, AT&T had 20 billion, and IBM had 7 billion. The companies complained that these funds should be made available so companies could use the money for, quote, more productive purposes. They also said that the ability to drain this surplus would increase pension security because it would give the companies the ability to use that money for, quote, other constructive purposes, which would encourage companies to fund the pensions at an even higher level. So instead of making it the law that pensions should not be stolen from, the companies instead wanted to be allowed to steal from it with impunity and without consequences and tax-free but to be asked nicely not to do so. So the ERISA advisory board, filled with corporate friendly members, gave companies permission to drain the pensions, but only the surplus, and only as long as the pension fund remains fully funded. The condition was that the money taken could only be used for the quote, exclusive benefit of plan participants. So, they changed the meaning of planned participants to include executives, and soon enough, the most important and prominent pension plan participants by far were executives. Fully funded. 
A pension fund is fully funded when it has enough money to pay all pensions for all retirees and current employees for all time, even if every one of them lives to be 100 years old. Almost every company at the time had fully funded pensions, and many had these massive surpluses on top of that. Yet almost all companies perpetually complained to the public that, quote, the growing pool of retirees is a unique burden on our bottom line. That was the excuse that they used to take whatever they legally could away from current retirees and also to stop pensions from accumulating any further for current employees. So the law requires pensions to be fully funded and they must never be reduced or eliminated. So in 1990, thanks to the internet bubble, which as an aside, I personally benefited from temporarily when I graduated college, the stock market was booming, resulting in massive surpluses. These surpluses were intended to provide a safety cushion in case of financial difficulties at the company or in the market. The 2008 crash was right around the corner, but now they were given permission to gut these surpluses and eliminating these cushions and with massive incentive and loopholes to do whatever the hell they liked. So the companies would drain the surpluses to nothing, and then the company would claim hardship because of the retirees. They would say, we must reduce your pensions or we will go bankrupt. And if we go bankrupt, you will receive nothing. And then that's the threat that they used to take away everything and anything they possibly could from the retirees. Although the core pension checks couldn't be touched, plenty else could such as health benefits, life insurance, all of these things could be reduced or eliminated without consequence. But even more so, they stopped current employee pensions from growing or slowed them down dramatically. They also found mistakes from years before of overpayment and then decades later would demand that the retiree pay them back. More on that later. And as a result of lowering those pensions, there was magically now more surplus for them to take. And this was the cycle that happened. Drain the surplus, complain hardship, lower the pensions more, and now suddenly there's more surplus. And this would continue and continue until there was no more pensions to be found, and then they would go bankrupt, and then they would use the pension funds to pay their debtors, and then they would dump the pension fund onto the doorstep of the PBGC. Everyone gets away with everything, living in the lap of luxury for the rest of their lives, no consequence, and the only one who suffers and dies is workers and retirees. And meanwhile, our federal representatives shrug helplessly while quietly accepting that envelope of money from the company owners. Now I'd like to talk about legal protections, that is, the right of pensioners to sue their companies. And when I say legal protections, I mean absolutely no legal protections. First, page 184. The ERISA law provides no punitive damages, so a court cannot compensate a retiree for any pain and suffering. This gives companies incentive to try and get away with as much as they can, because the worst that can happen to them is that they have to pay back the money that they were originally supposed to give them. And if they can keep the trial going long enough, they can invest that money 
and earn interest on it. And if the judge rules that the damages are not retroactive, then the company can earn even more. It's like if you beat somebody up and you take their wallet. The worst that could happen to you is that you just have to give the wallet back. Page 189. The ERISA law does not compensate retiree lawyers for legal costs unless the judge chooses to do so on a case-by-case -case basis. And since the retirees can often not afford legal fees, and since there's no punitive damages which lawyers can take a percentage of, there is little incentive for attorneys to take these cases on. The company, on the other hand, who almost never loses that I'm aware of, they either win or settle, they can sue the plaintiff, the retiree, to compensate their lawyers, and they can also use the money from the pension surplus to pay their defense lawyers, because that is considered defending the pension fund, which can legally be called exclusively for the benefit of pension plan participants. Page 185. The ERISA law is federal so no state or local laws or courts can help retirees. Federal lawsuits are much more cumbersome and lengthy, and they can take place in courts hundreds of miles away. Companies also started suing retirees at the same time that they informed them that they were having their benefits stripped away. They did this so they could prevent the retiree from suing first, because whoever sues first can decide what court to file in, and a company would therefore file at one very far away and with a judge who they knew was friendly. And guess whose pensions are not covered by the ERISA law and who are protected by state laws and state courts? Government officials. And our federal representatives are government officials who wrote and passed the ERISA law, which affects everyone but them. Almost all cases, at least the ones in this book, where the company doesn't win, is settled. So although that one pensioner may be compensated, no legal precedent is set, so no other current or future retirees can benefit from that decision. And finally, companies just simply knew how to work the legal system, and in some cases they just plain tricked judges into ruling in their favor. Two examples. Delta was being sued by its pilots, and Delta withheld critical data from the pilots until 24 hours before the trial. And the pilots lost that case, in part because the judge ruled that they were using estimates, where the company itself was using actual numbers and actual plan data. In another case, a judge ruled against retirees, partially quoting the propaganda that the company fed them. Quote, the growing population of retirees is becoming an undue burden on the company. So that's the basics of legal protections. And now I'd like to share some specific examples of how these companies were so vicious to their own retirees. Page 85 to 88. Charlie Craven was a retiree in Tucson, Arizona, receiving a pension check for the past 18 years of $346 a month for a total of around $75,000. And then he received a letter from Fidelity Investments. Fidelity was hired by his company to do an audit of their pension fund 
and they found mistakes. They found that the company had overpaid more than 300 retirees for a total of $100 million over decades. And the letter to Charlie Craven told him that he was overpaid by more than $18,000, which is about 25% of his total pension. He was given one month to repay it back in a lump sum, or 12 months to repay it back at $1,530 a month. Remember, his pension is $346 a month. The letter said that if he did not pay it back, that the company may take additional steps, such as reporting him to the IRS or collection agencies. This was entirely the company's mistake, but the retiree is the only one who has to pay for it, not even consideration of a discount. The letter to Charlie Craven ended, quote, we apologize for any inconvenience this may have caused. And the only phone number in the letter for assistance was an automated system that put them on hold forever and no human ever picked up. In the case of Charlie Craven, the company that currently owned his pension fund was not the company that he worked for. His company changed through acquisitions and buyouts and spin-offs, and this transferring of the funds causes more confusion. And this is specifically what happened to Charlie Craven's company. And this is a quote from the middle of page 87. Quote, Though Craven was a little hazy on his employment history, this is what records later showed. He first went to work at a company called Cypress Mines in 1962 and left in 1979 the year Amico Corporation bought the company. He returned to Cyprus two years later and retired in 1985. The year he retired, Amico spun off Cyprus as an independent company called Cyprus Minerals, transferring to it the pension liabilities of current employees. Cyprus Minerals began paying Craven a pension for his last five years of work, $52 a month. In 1993, Cyprus Minerals Company merged with Amex, forming Cyprus Amex Minerals Company. Phelps Dodge Corporation acquired Cyprus Amex Minerals Company in 1999 and continued paying the small pension. Meanwhile, Craven also began receiving a second monthly pension for his earlier work stint for $348. Amico paid this, and when Amico became part of British Petroleum in the late 1990s, the combined company paid this second pension. Got it? Close quote. But it turns out that this decades-long accident, this overpayment for 18 years, in fact, wasn't an overpayment. Because a reporter looked into Charlie Craven's story and pushed British Petroleum for paperwork to back up their claims of overpayment, and BP ended up reimbursing Charlie Craven all of that money plus interest. This one pensioner was made whole because of a diligent reporter. How many others had their pensions unjustifiably clawed back? And what incentive do companies have to not make mistakes and to not just accidentally claim overpayment when there is none? Because there's no punitive damages and hardly any retiree will be diligent enough or attract the notice of reporters. Not to mention that journalism is currently dying as well. Page 81 to 84. Chuck Ackerman was a corporate jet pilot for 26 years at Hughes Aircraft. His one and only job 
was to fly executives around the world, keeping them safe, and wined and dined. He retired in 1992. In 2000, he received a letter from Raytheon. They overpaid him by $32,000 for five years, and they would be withholding all pension checks going forward until this debt, they called it a debt, was repaid. In 1997, when Raytheon acquired Hughes Aircraft, the pension fund had a $1 billion surplus. It was even more than fully funded. And although you can't reduce existing pensions once retirees start receiving their checks, you can discover mistakes and then claw them back. The ERISA pension law says that overpayment must be returned to the fund, but it does not specify who is responsible for doing so. The plan changed hands, and it was impossible to obtain the documents. And even if he could obtain the documents, it was impossible to compare the old plan from the new one. It is therefore impossible to know that you're being overpaid, and it is always a shock when you're told, and there is no way for you to prepare. Four days before receiving the letter from Raytheon, Chuck Ackerman was told that his cancer, which he had been fighting, had now spread to his liver and lungs. So he started chemotherapy and became emaciated, but he was forced to return to work on his farm. He was originally told that all $32,000 had to be paid back in one year. After appealing to the company, they allowed him to pay $500 a month. He died in 2002, and his wife continued those payments for two and a half more years. But even after they finished, the company still deducted $500 a month and would not stop doing so until the wife nagged the company to stop. Page 184. The Supreme Court interpreted the 1974 ERISA law, which was intended to protect only pensions, that it also covered disability. This decision put power into the hands of companies to determine if retirees were disabled. This gave companies incentive to deny all claims because what was the worst that could happen? If the pensioners sued and won, they would just have to pay back the claims. There are many examples in the book of pensioners providing the company with many doctor's notes confirming disability, and yet still the company denied the claims for years, many of those denials continuing until the retirees just die of old age or as a consequence of their disability. The 2010 Affordable Care Act thankfully stopped this practice, but companies got to profit off of this decision for 23 years. So you can't cut pensions that have already been earned, but you can reduce and eliminate many other benefits such as health care and death benefits, and you can also trick retirees to voluntarily reduce or eliminate their own benefits. Page 119. Daniel Johnson was diagnosed with two cancerous brain tumors in 1999. He had two surgeries and radiation, and his speech became impaired. He returned to work at Southwest Bank of Texas, which was a predecessor of Amogee Bank. In 2000, he was demoted because of his communication skills and so-called job performance. Despite the demotion, he was offered a free new life insurance policy for $150,000 in coverage. The agreement signed by Daniel Johnson also authorized the company 
to purchase a life insurance policy in his name. Four months later, Daniel was fired and his own life insurance policy was terminated. When Daniel died eight years later, his family made nothing, but the company made $4.7 million from their own policy on Daniel's life. His wife sued and the company settled in 2010 for an unknown amount. Page 121. In 1992, a young employee died at the age of 29. The company had a life insurance policy in his name that earned them around $170,000. That money was used for executive compensation, with $280 of it going to pay the child support of the nephew of the company's founder. Page 122. Margaret Reynolds, born in 1936, made $21,000 as an administrative assistant and buyer for CM Holdings. In the 1990s, Margaret developed Lou Gehrig's disease. The family requested $5,000 from the company for a special wheelchair, which was denied. Margaret died in 1998 at 62 years old. The family made $21,000 as a death benefit. The company also had a life insurance policy on Margaret and made $180,000 when she died. Page 80. One of the final letters received by retiree named Bill Jelly in 2003 was a letter from his company, Western Electric, that told him that his death benefit of $39,000 that he earned in 1979 was being canceled in one month. Bill Jelly died soon after it was canceled. Page 122 to 124. You can only take a life insurance policy out on somebody if you have a, quote, insurable benefit in that person. Otherwise, you could buy a policy on a stranger, such as someone who has bad health or takes big risks, like a coal miner or a skydiver, and then you can just profit off of them. Companies originally took out policies only on key employees, but soon enough, Dow Chemical, for instance, bought life insurance policies on 200,000 of their employees. In 1993 to 1995, Walmart purchased 350,000 life insurance policies on their employees. Companies can make more than $120 million a year just on life insurance policies. And not just when they die, but also they could borrow from these policies, claim them as interest, and invest them and earn interest on them. Congress did try and close these loopholes, but they were lobbied by these companies, and the companies hired them as soon as they left office for millions of dollars. Page 130 and 132. In 2004, banks held $65.88 billion in life insurance policies on their employees. Four years later, it almost doubled to $122.3 billion. But since disclosure is limited, it could very well be a lot more. When insurance companies are asked, they claim to not know how many policies the companies purchased from them. Pages 146 and 158. According to the actuary calculations of the life insurance companies, 92-year-old retiree John Wellesley Galloway was supposed to be dead. So the company decided to do a death audit what they called a life verification declaration. 
They required the retirees to prove that they were still alive or their health care coverage would be canceled. And it's not like the company themselves couldn't figure this out because they check the Social Security rules every couple of weeks. What they required of the retirees was a notarized affidavit and if a spouse is also covered, a marriage certificate. And if they didn't have a marriage certificate, they had to obtain one from the county clerk in the town in which they got married. They were given a month to return the paperwork. The letter said, quote, Research has shown that ineligible members, meaning the dead, cost the company millions and you thousands in benefits, close quote. Clearly, many elderly retirees would not return the paperwork, and therefore they would be considered dead, and the company would silently cancel their benefits. A lawyer who was disgusted by this practice traveled to ensure that more than 100 elderly retirees received the paperwork, filled it out, and returned it to the company. And thanks to this lawyer, all of them did, and all of them kept their health benefits, until the company did their next death audit. So why did companies steal so aggressively from these pensions? And the answer is not surprising. It is to enrich executives and to purchase more laws to make it even more legal to enrich themselves even more. Page 113. In 2008, one-third of all pay by all American companies went to executive compensation, and most of that went to the top 2%. Page 108. But they hid those massive increases from the public. In yearly proxy statements, it appeared to show executive pay slightly declining along with workers. But when you dig around into the footnotes and correctly interpret the opaque and misleading terminology, executive compensation actually went up by 58%. They would call things like transition benefits or retirement savings component massive loopholes to do whatever they liked. Page 143. Royal and Sun Alliance, on the advice of PricewaterhouseCooper, added $2 a month to 100 employees, and doing that allowed them to add 5000 $1,300 a month to one executive's pay, paid in a lump sum of $793,000. PricewaterhouseCooper itself also matched executive contributions two to one, but they would only match worker contributions 0.25 to one. And that number, again, was just enough to make that two to one match legal so it would be non-discriminatory. And finally, page 178, Don Blankenship, the CEO of Massey Energy, the coal company that literally blew the tops off of entire mountains to more easily reach the coal, and whose years of safety violations culminated in the deaths of 29 workers in a single accident and about 20 others between 2000 and 2011, all preventable according to government reports, and who poisoned an entire community's water supply by dumping 1.4 billion gallons of coal slurry into an abandoned mine that just so happened to be connected 
to drinking water for the entire town. And this is according to grist.org's article in 2015 called Five Years After the Deadly Coal Mine Disaster, What's Changed? Blankenship left Massey Energy in shame, and he also left with a $55 million golden parachute and guaranteed 100% health care coverage for his entire family for the rest of their lives, and he also got a free office and secretary for life. He purchased a mega mansion with hypersecurity and built a water main from a faraway clean water source all the way to his house, which was surrounded by a community whose drinking water he poisoned. So that's all I have. I want to finish by reading a six-page excerpt, and then I want to tell you the conclusions that I've drawn. So the section is the beginning of chapter 10, called Twilight Zone, How Employers Use Pension Law to Thwart Retirees. And this is page 160 to 167. Until recently, someone pausing at the Walmart in Delmont, Pennsylvania, might have been greeted by Ed Pexa, who had retired years before from GenCorp, the former General Tire and Rubber Company, whose well-known jingle goes, sooner or later, you'll own General. Pexa, a former Marine, hadn't planned on working at Walmart in retirement or traveling, but he ended up doing both. He needed the greeter job because he was no longer receiving the $320 a month pension he'd earned after working a quarter century in the tennis ball department at GenCorp. His former employee was keeping it all to pay for Pexa's share of his retiree health coverage. The coverage had been company paid when he retired, but the company had unilaterally begun charging very steep premiums. Pexa couldn't drop the coverage because he needed it to help cover his wife's prescription drugs, so he began working 30 hours a week at Walmart. He thought the job was pretty decent, since he got an hour for lunch and two 15-minute breaks a day. He also ended up traveling to court, over and over, as the retirees tried to reverse the company's decision. Though he didn't know it, he was living out a process that the Verity Human Resource Managers had so candidly discussed behind closed doors years ago. Companies had little to lose by unilaterally cutting benefits they had promised retirees in written contracts. The retirees might pass the hat and try to raise funds to file a suit, but even if they got that far, it would be very easy for an employer to drag out a case until the employees died. And whatever the outcome, the company saves money in the meantime. Such was the legal odyssey of the GenCorp retirees. In January 2000, the company, by then a manufacturer of aerospace products, began charging 2,063 hourly retirees health care premiums despite a labor contract that promised them free coverage for life. John Van Dyke, a retired millwright, thought fighting back in court was the answer. I was sure that once the judge saw the contract, it would be over, he said. How long could it take? Longer than many of them would be around. Frank Palumbo was one of the oldest. Born in 1914, he went to work for General Tire and Rubber Company when he was 16 years old. In 1934, at the age of 19, he participated in the first sit-down strike to organize the rubber workers in the Akron, Ohio plant. Always active in the union, he worked at the company for 44 years 
until he retired in 1975 with a promise of lifetime medical coverage. By the early 1990s, most of the retirees like him were on Medicare, so their company paid benefits covered only prescription drugs and Medicare premiums and deductibles. Not a huge amount for the company, but critical for the retirees, most of whom had pensions in the low three digits. In the mid-1990s, the company used a trick the Verity managers hadn't thought of. It sent the retirees enrollment forms, giving them a choice between remaining in their no-cost plan or switching to one with significant cost-sharing. Elderly but not demented, Palumbo and the other retirees of course chose to remain in their current plan. But perhaps with their failing eyesight, they didn't notice, at the bottom of the form, a sentence in microscopic print. It said that the retiree acknowledged that the, quote, benefits elected replace benefits under the prior GenCorp URN retiree medical plans. About five years after Palumbo returned the form, his January pension check arrived. It was smaller. A mistake? No. The company said it was beginning to deduct some of their pensions to help pay for their health care coverage. The retirees pointed out that the contract said the company would provide them lifetime coverage. GenCorp didn't dispute that, but said that lifetime didn't mean at no cost. Their union couldn't help them because when it negotiated a contract in 1994, the United Rubber Workers had agreed not to represent the retirees in any future lawsuit in exchange for delaying an increase in benefits. Some unions have less noble reasons for not backing retirees. When negotiating compensation for current workers, some are tempted to toss the retirees who don't vote overboard. Without a union to back them in court, the retirees face almost impossible odds. There are few attorneys who handle ERISA cases for the plaintiffs. One reason is that an individual employee or retiree can't afford the fees, and class actions can be hard to bring for a variety of reasons. Courts have interpreted ERISA as disallowing any punitive or pain and suffering damages, so there are no potential damages of this sort that attorneys can use to finance cases. All a plaintiff can win is restoration of the disputed benefit if he's still alive. The plaintiff's attorney takes a risk too, thanks to the way in which the courts have interpreted ERISA's attorney's fee provision, it's up to a judge to decide whether the plaintiff's lawyer will be reimbursed for any of his time and expense. Still, the retirees who had worked at the Jeanette plant passed a hat and chipped in $100 per couple. Mabel Kramer, a widow, chipped in $50. She'd begun working at the company in 1944, making gas masks for World War II soldiers. She was no longer receiving her pension of $179 a month based on her husband's 34 years with the company because GenCorp deducted every cent to use for her health coverage for which it was charging her $284 a month. She had to pay the company the remaining $105 from her $810 social security check. The $12,000 the retirees collected would cover only a fraction of the cost of mounting a suit, but the retirees found a lawyer who was willing to take the case anyway. William Payne, a Pittsburgh attorney who had represented retirees over the years in more than 60 cases. One of the first cases he worked on 
soon after getting out of law school in the 1970s, was the now infamous Continental Can case, in which company managers had used a secret program with the code name BELL, which is a reverse acronym for Let's Limit Employee Benefits. The can company used the system to identify older workers who were about to lock in bigger pensions and targeted those plants for closing. The case was a rare win for workers. It has been mostly downhill since. Payne had spent the rest of his career watching ERISA protections get eroded in the courts. Payne and his law partner, John Stember, met the retirees at Dick's Diner, a popular fuel stop just off the highway between Pittsburgh and Jeanette, and over coffee and cheesesteaks, he cautioned them that the case could take a long time. The retirees were undaunted. There, John Van Dyke, Stanley Wotus, and Ed Pexa, all veterans who had served in the Pacific during or after World War II, volunteered to be plaintiffs. Nor were Payne and Stember daunted by the cardboard boxes the retirees hauled with them, filled with decades-old documents they dredged up out of basements, closets, and garages. They filed suit in October, and the first meeting with the judge was scheduled the following May. In the 17 months since GenCorp had started charging them for health coverage, the retirees' costs had doubled. Next section, road trip. The first court conference was in Akron, Ohio, 110 miles away. Van Dyke, who had the best eyesight, drove the other guys in the pre-dawn darkness to rendezvous with Payne, who drove them the rest of the way in the minivan he usually used to take his sons to hockey practice. They had to pull over numerous times. Van Dyke had had part of his stomach removed following a bout of cancer in the 1990s and needed small, frequent meals. Others had prostate problems, and Wotus was taking several medications for blood pressure and heart problems. Pexa, who misjudged the insulin shots he was taking for his diabetes, at one point passed out in the back seat, prompting a quick pit stop at a gas station mini-mart for orange juice. Despite their various pit stops, the retirees made it to the 9 a.m. court session in time. There, the eager retirees cited labor contracts promising lifetime coverage. But GenCorp, in court documents, maintained that lifetime didn't mean at no cost. This kind of semantic game had become common. Another popular one was to say that lifetime referred not to the life of the retiree, but to the life of the contract. GenCorp argued that the retirees had knowingly released the company from its obligations to pay, and pointed to the enrollment forms retirees had filled out years earlier, saying coverage was replaced. In short, the retirees, not GenCorp, were trying to renege on a written agreement company lawyers maintained. The judge could have decided the case on the merits or sent it to trial. Instead, he insisted that the parties work it out. But when neither side budged, the judge scheduled a mediation meeting in Cleveland a year later. GenCorp then insisted that the retirees should include people from other locations, so several retirees traveled from Kentucky and Ohio, booking senior discount rooms at the Holiday Inn. Kenneth Bottles, then in his 80s, came the farthest. His three-connecting flight trip from Waco, Texas, took eight hours. When neither side backed down in the second mediation hearing, 
the judge ordered a third meeting. Eight months later, the retirees traveled to this third meeting minus WOTUS, who had had a stroke. This meeting failed too, so the judge finally ordered depositions and document production to proceed. This meant the retirees had to travel to Cleveland to be deposed by GenCorp lawyers. The May 2003 sessions took several hours each. The retirees whiled away their weights playing cards and trading war stories about their times at Okinawa and Iwo Jima. Next section. End of the road. The following August, the retirees' lawyers failed to have the suit certified as a class action. Without this, even if the named plaintiffs won, no others would get their benefits restored. GenCorp opposed this. It said that the plaintiffs were too befuddled to represent the class. As was clear from their depositions, some had forgotten what they were thinking when they signed the enrollment forms. One didn't remember what was in GenCorp's slide presentation explaining the benefit options eight years earlier. GenCorp also accused the retirees of destroying evidence. The reason? They'd commingled their paperwork when they pulled their brochures in a cardboard box while searching for a lawyer. That constituted spoilation, GenCorp said, adding that it would, quote, seek appropriate remedies at a later date. Remedies in these situations can include charging retirees for a company's legal fees. Finally, GenCorp said the retirees should be denied class status because they were too dispersed so that different legal standards governing different parts of the country would apply, and because the named plaintiffs were too sick to adequately represent everybody. The plaintiffs were, in fact, sick. Shortly after, in August 2003, Robert Berger, age 69, died. Palumbo died the next month at 89. His widow, Mary Elizabeth, 88, volunteered to take his place. In December, the judge sided with GenCorp and denied the retirees' request to be certified as a class. The retirees had discovered another harsh reality. If he is so inclined, a judge can keep a case from ever reaching trial. Judge Dan Polster had badgered the parties to settle, and the retirees had to travel, time and again, to court hundreds of miles away, in some cases to attend incremental hearings that took only a short time. The retirees figured that by denying the class action, the judge was just trying to get them to give up. But after this setback, the retirees rallied and signed up an additional 294 plaintiffs. They filed another suit in July 2004, in time to beat a statute of limitations that the company said was about to expire. The next month, the judge dismissed that case, telling the roughly 400 retirees, mostly in their 80s, that each would have to file an individual case and pay the $150 filing fee for each one. The retirees called the judge's bluff. Payne and Stember filed 400 individual suits, paying $60,000 in filing fees rather than the $350 it would have cost if the judge hadn't insisted on separate individual cases. They had to act fast. Quote, they were dropping like flies, Payne says. He told the judge that the average age of the retirees was 82. The judge's reaction? He said he would grant each of the 342 retirees a trial, one at a time. 
hearing one case individually each month, minus vacation and holidays, would take years, and few of the retirees whose average age was 82 would live long enough to see it be resolved. The retirees were backed into a corner because an appeal can't be made until a final judgment, and there's no final judgment until the end of a trial. They agreed to settle and would pay a portion of their coverage. They did not, of course, get reimbursed for what they'd spent on the coverage over the prior six years. The terms of the late 2005 settlement are confidential, but securities filings make one thing very clear. GenCorp accomplished exactly what the Verity HR managers had predicted would happen in these situations. It saved money. From 2000 to 2008, the company's liabilities for retiree health care fell almost 70% to $76 million thanks to the number of retiree dropouts and deaths. And even with the settlement, the plan's costs have continued to fall steadily. Every year after 2005, the retiree health plan actually contributed a total of $8.4 million to GenCorp's quarterly earnings. Regardless of whether a company wins or loses its case, it always wins the game. So now my conclusions. The executives at these companies are already fabulously wealthy and yet they use the very lives of millions of retirees, tens of millions, as their own personal piggy banks. Because it's fun. Because they can. Because fabulous wealth is just not good enough. They want obscene wealth. And this whole story reminds me of my previous interview with Historically, which was with a father who lost his 29-year-old son because his son missed a $20 payment for his depression medication and was told by his insurance company that he had to wait a month to refill his prescription. Two weeks later, he superglued his seatbelt shut, opened his windows, and drove into the lake. This multi-billion dollar corporation would rather a 29-year-old man die than to sacrifice even a $20 bill. And it's very easy to say, oh, well, I blame him. He, he could have been more responsible with paying his $20 bill. And to that I say, what kind of society puts its people into a position where if they miss a $20 payment, they die? What kind of society is that even a possibility? So this kind of horror happens in many aspects of our society. The asbestos industry, for example, they knew they were killing people in the early 1900s while they were encouraging people to sprinkle it all over their Christmas trees as fake snow. The tobacco industry knew they were killing people when they paid doctors to go onto TV and tell people just how healthy their cigarettes were. The private for-profit health insurance industry, the price-gouging pharmaceutical industry, the pension industry, they all knew that they were killing people. And now, the fossil fuel industry. They've known about climate change since, as I understand it, the 1950s. But they're not just killing a few million here, a few million there. They are killing the entire human species. According to a 2019 report commissioned by the Australian government, there is a, quote, 
high likelihood that human civilization is coming to an end, close quote, starting in 2050. And this is corroborated by another 2014 report commissioned by the UK government and others. According to the Australian report, this is going to happen because of the mass migration of millions out of soon-to-be unlivable hot environments and unlivable flooded coastal cities. And this will cause nation-states to falter and international order to break down. For instance, New York City, it may survive the street level and the buildings, but New York City cannot function without its subway. And with the seas rising, how long will its subway survive? We could go extinct before my grandchildren have the chance to reach adulthood. How do I prepare my two little boys for this possibility? In 2014, an academic study by the journal Ecological Economics 101 concluded that one of the biggest factors in all of human societal collapse throughout history is inequality. And in 2006, on page 114, Goldman Sachs had an internal analysis that concluded, quote, the most important contributor to high profit margins over the past 15 years has been a decline in labor's share of national income, close quote. Stealing from workers to line the pockets of executives. Like the scorpion in the fable, the scorpion and the frog. The frog carries the scorpion across the lake, and the scorpion stings it, and they both drown. It's just the scorpion's nature. It's what it was born to do. I don't blame the monsters. I blame the system that allows it to happen. Our government allows these monsters to prey upon us when they could easily protect us and provide all their people with all their basic needs for free. Food, shelter, health care, education, a decent job, a dignified retirement, a livable planet. But instead, they withhold all of these things. And who else is there to give it to us except for these monsters? Our government steps aside and lets them swoop in. Why do our federal governments withhold from us? Why do they allow these horrors to occur? They subsidize the fossil fuel industry with hundreds of billions of dollars, knowing that they're killing us all. And the answer is, is because our federal representatives get a cut of the action. They are legally bribed to not help us so that the bribers can profit off of our suffering. They are legally bribed to change the laws so it's impossible for us to fight back or to get into government and make things better. The problem is not the government, because government is a neutral tool. It can be used for good, evil, or not at all. The same is true with economics, chemistry, medicine. The knowledge of any of these things can be used for good, for evil, or not at all. The only hope we have is to rise up and to get rid of these corrupt politicians and replace them with actual human beings with souls and shame mechanisms. 
but they've got us so occupied fighting with each other over racism and sexism and homophobia and xenophobia and even economics. How are you going to pay for it? They are so successful at getting us to fight with each other that they can just sit back and relax and keep using us for target practice. Bernie Sanders is not playing when he says that we need a political revolution. And in my opinion, he is our last best hope for a peaceful revolution. Because a revolution is coming, and probably at some point in the not-too-distant future. Now it's only a matter of how it happens, and who takes control, and who gets hurt. The final thing I want to say is the definition of survival. Survival for the many is preventing actual death, suffering, bankruptcy, and unemployment. For the wealthy few, survival is defined as preventing becoming a member of the many. And this is partially because they simply can't fathom not being in the lap of luxury, and partially because they chose a life so luxurious that it requires hurting millions of people, and that if they became a member of the many, they would deservedly be eaten alive or put in a guillotine. So that's all. I've done plenty of interviews in the past few years, but this is the first one that I've ever done where I've just spoken at length on a topic that I researched. This particular episode took about 18 handwritten pages of script and outlines, all of which took about a month to write. And I wrote it all with number two pencils and manual sharpeners on college-ruled paper. Thank you very much. So I am the non-billionaire, non-pedophile, non-dead Jeff Epstein. Please join us next time on Historically. Music for this show is done by Rec Tech. You can find Rec Tech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. Thank you for listening to the show. See you next time on Historically. Historically.